trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm glad you came to Revel in Wrong Think for a short time. I'll do my best to provide you with timely, credible, hopefully principled information. You don't have to believe, okay? This is not to tell you what to think, but uh, I'm going to try to present you with some thoughts and commentaries and uh, ideas that will hopefully shed better light on what's going on in the world as well as what can you and I do about it? Because really, you know, we can all sit and complain, but that doesn't do so much, does it? All right, we'll dive in here in just a moment. Let me take a quick second here to thank my sponsors, including HSLMO.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and GarageDoorProServices.com. So I don't know about you, but I think I could could pretty accurately sum up, you know, what's the, the cause of so much of our trouble? Meddling. The desire that some people have to meddle in other people's lives, whether it's under political power, whether it's just regulatory power, whether it's just Karen out there being Karen and eh, you got to do this. And, you know, basically uh, trying to exercise some form of dominion over people around her. Dan Sanchez, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, has a terrific article on when meddlers run amok. But I also like his answers to, okay, so what do you do about it? I mean, it's one thing to get in their face or, you know, scream at them or something. Not so effective. He says self-improvement is actually the answer to this interventionism, whether it be at the geopolitical or at the individual level. Dan Sanchez says the world is beset by meddlers run amok. Government officials around the globe have been on an interventionist decree spree placing whole populations under house arrest, shutting down entire industries, mandating medical procedures for millions, and so much more. So what can anti-interventionists do about such a metastasis of mass meddling? Well, he reminds us, the the solution that gets the most attention is, is usually direct political change, right? Well, you remove the mass meddlers from power and you replace them with leaders who respect liberty. In fact, Dan Sanchez says Leonard E. Reed, the the founder of the Foundation for Economic Education, discussed this proposed fix in his book, Elements of Libertarian Leadership. This is what Leonard Reed had to say. The interventionists, it's observed, have leaders galore in the political arena. Why, inquire many interventionists, should we tarry any longer? Why not find ourselves some political leaders who will represent our points of view? But he, he says this solution misunderstands the problem. Reed continues, the reason is that the interventionists, the reason rather that the interventionists have so many leaders is only because there is throughout our land a very substantial body of influential interventionist opinion. So the ones out front and who are popularly appraised as leaders are in fact not the real leaders. They're but echoes of the underlying opinion and an echo implies an antecedent sound. Now, Dan Sanchez says, as Reed's colleague Ludwig von Mises explained, thought leaders, influential opinion, sway the popular support, and popular support sets the parameters for political success. That makes sense. 
So the reason anti-interventionist policies have not prevailed is that the ideological groundwork for them has not been laid. Reed warned of the futility of attempting to build on a foundation that does not exist. One might as well look for an abundance of flowers where there's been a scarcity of seeds. Now, Reed explained, the out-front folks in political parties are but thermometers. They're indicators of the political temperature. Change the temperature, and there will be a change in what's out front, naturally and spontaneously. The only purpose in keeping an eye on the thermometer is to know what the temperature is. If the underlying influential opinion, the temperature, is interventionist, then we'll have interventionists in public office regardless of the party labels they may choose for their adornment and public appeal. Wow, does that describe our situation today? Because the statism we're up against, it is not just, you know, it's not just Democratic flavored. It's, uh, it's also Republican flavored. In fact, there are all sorts of flavors. It's all along the spectrum of statism. For the belief is, if it's not under the control of the state, by definition, it must be out of control. So Dan Sanchez says, in other words, we will be stuck with interventionist overlords so long as the masses are under the sway of interventionist thought leaders. And until that changes... Deposing one set of tyrants will only make room for another. So the only way to rid ourselves of mass meddlers is to reorient the meddlesome masses. Politics, as Andrew Breitbart said, is downstream from culture. Now, interestingly enough, Dan Sanchez points out, politics and culture are both downstream from ideas. So it's ideas that reign supreme. The political culture of a people is shaped by the moral, social, economic, and political philosophy of its thought leaders. It's the influential opinion, as Reed clarified, or ideological might, as Mises called it, that counts. Nothing else. Now this is to be distinguished from public opinion, there being no such thing. Every significant movement in history, good or bad, has resulted from influential ideas held by comparatively few persons. Murray Rothbard explained, for the masses of men do not create their own ideas or indeed think through these ideas independently. They follow passively the ideas adopted and disseminated by the body of intellectuals. The intellectuals are therefore the opinion molders in society. Now it's important to note that the ranks of influential intellectuals are not exclusive to university academics and corporate journalists, which is a relief since those establishment professions have become so compromised by interventionist governments. Especially in the age of the Internet, entrepreneurial intellectuals like podcasters and substack writers and amateur intellectuals like you or anyone else with the interest and intellect it takes to read an essay like this one can rise and come to the fore. That is good news. And Dan Sanchez says, Influence doesn't come from the government-aligned establishment vesting someone with a Ph.D. or a press pass. True influence, Reed taught, comes from within. So here then, he wrote, is the key question. What constitutes an influential opinion? In the context of moral, social, economic, and political philosophy, influential opinion stems from or rests upon depth of understanding, strength of conviction, and the power of attractive exposition. These are the ingredients of self-perfection as relating to a set of ideas. So, persons who thus improve their understanding, dedication, and exposition are the leaders of men. The rest of us are followers, including the out-front political personalities. So, to realize liberty, we must first cultivate an influential libertarian opinion. To rid ourselves of mass meddlers, 
we must first persuasively advocate an anti-interventionist, pro-liberty philosophy. And before we can effectively do that, we must understand and uphold that philosophy ourselves, which, as Reed cautioned, is harder than many libertarians suppose. Now, from here, he goes into meddling defined. It says, with that in mind, what exactly is interventionism as distinct from liberty? What constitutes meddling as opposed to minding one's own proper business? To rid ourselves of something, we have to first be able to identify it. The most fundamental distinction between proper and improper conduct is between the proper and improper use of force. As John Locke discussed, and America's founders for the most part agreed, force is only proper in the defense of individual rights. Any force outside of that, or any use of force outside of that, whether by government agents or private criminals, is therefore the worst kind of intervention, meddling with someone else's person or property. When government agents infringe on the rights of individuals, they transgress the most fundamental bounds of propriety. And by meddling in other people's business, government officials also stray beyond their domain of confidence. As F.A. Hayek explained in his work on the knowledge problem, Central planners are incapable of social engineering the affairs of others without making a massive mess of things. Tyrannical order can only yield planned chaos, as Mises called it. So interventionism is morally wrong, says Dan Sanchez. It's socially destructive, whereas liberty yields justice, harmony, and flourishing. And his point is that if more intelligent and upstanding upstanding men and women had understood these truths well enough to consistently abide by them and persuasively explain them, their influence would have prevented the interventionist blitzkrieg that's made such a mess of the world over the last couple of years. Now, from here, he goes into clean your room, you know, uh, basically uh, quoting Jordan Peterson. We'll come back to this actually in the next segment and touch on it briefly, but I'd like you to go ahead and read Dan's essay for yourself. This is really powerful stuff because it's not waiting for someone else to come in and solve the problem. Well, let's elect somebody. Let's get somebody in office to, to solve this for us. If you're serious about solving the problem of people meddling, you've got to become the kind of person who requires absolutely no meddling. Maybe I should put that another way. Who can tell those who are inclined to meddle, no thank you. I don't need what you're selling today. I don't need what you're offering but you got to kind of have your uh, stuff together if you're going to make that work. We'll come back to this in just a few moments. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to HSLAmmo.com. I know if you are uh, interested in going out there and making a joyous noise for freedom, ammo's got to be a part of that equation. If you're interested in turning your money into skill via training, ammo is going to be required in order to do that. And if you're just looking for a great place to uh, store some value that's uh, not likely to uh, depreciate or otherwise be inflated, you know, uh, out of uh, out of its value... Well, let's just say that uh, lead, copper, and brass constitute some of the lesser-known precious metals. HSLAmmo.com can help you get fixed up. Just click on the link I provide in my show notes. So I'm sharing this article from Dan Sanchez from the Foundation for Economic Education. 
when meddlers run amok. And I think he does a wonderful job with the help of Leonard Reed and a few others of identifying the problem and how simply switching names and faces, we'll put in this politician, Liz Cheney, you're out. Now let's put in some new statist. It's, it's not going to change things in the long run if people themselves are holding that interventionist mindset. In other words, the politicians will be as interventionist as the mindset of the public is going to allow them to be. So it brings us to an interesting place where you've got to be able to, uh, you got to be able to be anti-interventionist and that starts with improving yourself. Now this brings us to clean your room. Dan Sanchez says, advancing a pro-liberty, anti-meddling, social, economic, and political philosophy, that's only half the solution. As Mises explained in the psychological roots of anti-liberalism, a section of his book, Liberalism in the Classical Tradition, many people have moral failings and psychological issues that make their support for interventionist and social do- socialist doctrines immune from rational counter-argument. Some people embrace interventionism and socialism as a coping mechanism. They respond to disappointment over their own lives by shifting most of the blame away from themselves and onto outside factors like greedy capitalists or capitalism itself. And through political activism, they meddle in the affairs of others as a way of evading responsibility for their own lives. As Reed put it, those who refuse to rule themselves are usually bent on ruling others. Those who can rule themselves usually have no interest in ruling others. So with people for whom meddling is less an intellectual error and more of an emotional hang-up, a different approach may be needed. He says you may need to help them understand that a life philosophy of resentment is debilitating and self-destructive, while a life philosophy of responsibility is fulfilling, ennobling, and can be downright life-saving. Frederick Bastiat said to the mass meddlers of 19th century France, you wish to reform everything, why don't you reform yourselves? That task would be sufficient enough. Now, psychologist Jordan B. Peterson echoed this injunction when, on Joe Rogan's podcast, he said, don't be fixing up the economy, 18-year-olds. You don't know anything about the economy. It's a massive, complex machine beyond anyone's understanding, and you mess with it at your own peril. So can you even clean up your own room? Before you get caught up in restructuring society, Peterson advised, sort out your own life first, starting with your room, because then you're not exceeding your domain of competence. Peterson said, my sense is that if you want to change the world, you start from yourself and work outward because you build your competence that way. And as you improve yourself, you may become an inspiration and good influence for your family, then your circle of friends, then your colleagues at work, and maybe even wider communities. You change the world for the better by acting as the role model, not a mass meddler. True leadership is modeling, not meddling. Ooh, I love that. So this is how you become a force for good instead of a do-gooder. It's the difference between meaningful virtue and vain virtue signaling. And attaining the former is vastly more satisfying than indulging in the latter. I mean, you can sometimes fool others, but you can't fool your own conscience. And the human conscience knows the difference between actually doing good and fraudulently looking good. So Dan Sanchez writes, Peterson's message of personal responsibility and self-improvement has resonated powerfully with young audiences and inoculated them against the gospel of resentment and intellectual arrogance preached by interventionists and and socialists. 
In fact, he says, Leonard Reed would have been delighted to see Peterson's impact and not in the least bit surprised. Right method, he wrote, consists of self-improvement. If everyone were devoted to the perfection of self, there could be no meddlers among us. And without meddlers, there could be no socialism. A message of self-improvement and personal responsibility can succeed where socioeconomic arguments fail because it's less of an intellectual exercise and more of a practical dilemma. A person can still cling to their coping mechanism and deny the truth of the message, but only to their own great personal detriment. Now, this brings us to the paradox of changing the world. Dan Sanchez says, We free ourselves from mass meddling by educating ourselves and others about the dangers of meddling, both on a societal as well as a personal level. But in so doing, he says, we have to be wary of fighting fire with fire. In other words, of meddling with the meddlers. For example, we must never use government intervention for cheap wins against interventionists, because then we become what we hate. And as Reed stressed, we should even avoid imposing our explanations on those who have no interest in them. Sharing wisdom where it's not welcome is its own kind of meddling. Rather than casting pearls at those incapable of appreciating them, we should address those who are open to learning. And he says, above all, Reed stressed improving one's own understanding, dedication to, and ability to explain the freedom philosophy. Because the more you do that, the more you will attract students who are not only open to your teaching, but who actively seek it. As Larry Reed, President Emeritus of Fee, has stressed in his book, Are We Good Enough for Liberty? Improving one's character in general is also essential because it greatly increases your influence with those who admire you. And of course, that shouldn't be the main reason you pursue character development. Self-improvement becomes self-defeating when it becomes primarily about garnering influence, winning praise, and other forms of moral vanity. Dan says the paradox of changing the world is that the best way to improve others is to not try to improve others. Instead, seek self-improvement for its own sake, and you'll inspire others to improve themselves as a natural and blessed byproduct. As Leonard Reed taught, the most powerful way to administer to the meddlers in our midst is to exercise the meddlers within ourselves and devote our hearts to self-improvement, thereby leading the way to liberty by our example. And that is so good. That is so on target. And by the way, this is consistent. The people whose points of view I really have found um, to be not only relevant, but to be extremely encouraging during times like we're experiencing right now, where it just seems the meddling is everywhere. It's at every level. Well, your kid can't even go to school, you know, without the meddlers, you know, wanting to in some way inflict themselves on your child. And it makes people angry, or at least it makes me angry. It actually brings up some really dark feelings like, oh, I want to fight back. But the most trusted voices that I have been able to find, the, the most credible voices, the ones who seem to have the best grasp of the situation, all have the same kind of solution in mind. And it starts with get your own stuff together. Become a truly excellent person. And again, it's not for the sake of, of what's in it for me. It's not for the sake of what award am I going to get? How many, uh, how many rounds of applause? How many standing ovations? None of that matters. Some things are worth doing simply because they're the right thing to do. And in this case, being the right thing to do, in other words, becoming the best version of yourself, 
And I'm going to clarify what I mean by that. The truest version of yourself. The kind of person who can be counted on to do the right thing in all times and circumstances. Even when it's not easy. Especially when it's not easy. That's what makes the world a better place. And it also puts you in an indisputably good position to stand up for yourself. You're not dependent on somebody else. You know, it's it's not to, you have to bend the knee to this message because otherwise you're not going to have any food or shelter. You can stand on your own feet and yes, the power of example will draw others along behind you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I would like you to know that Garage Door Pros is one of my sponsors of this program. And that's especially good news for my listeners in the St. George, Utah, Cedar City, Utah, Mesquite, Nevada, and Colorado City, Arizona areas. Yep, Garage Door Pros is a local company to you, installing, servicing, and repairing garage doors. By the way, they do commercial garage doors as well. Quick response, much faster lead time. In fact, their customers, if you go on their website, garagedoorproservices.com, look at the customer reviews. I always like to see, what are people saying? What, can I get a good sense of how they're taking care of, of their, their people? There's some really great material there. So if you're in the market for a garage door, an insulated garage door, for instance, here's what you do. Call 435-525-2773 or go to garagedoorproservices.com. And when you talk to them, tell them thanks for sponsoring this program. Well, here's something you don't see very often. That is a dissenting scientific viewpoint regarding climate change. Right? Well, all the, all the scientists agree. Well, what happened to the ones who disagree? Well, we got rid of them. <laughs> okay, then I can see why the scientists agree. But here's an article from The Daily Skeptic. Question everything. Stay sane. Live free. Actually, that sounds like a good way to go. Chris Morrison writes about 1,200 scientists and professionals declare there is no climate emergency. I know, you can almost hear the screams. No, that's heresy. You can't say this. Let me give you a couple of excerpts from this article. Again, this is from Chris Morrison, who says, the political fiction that humans cause most or all climate change and the claim that the science behind this notion is settled has been dealt a savage blow by the publication of a World Climate Declaration, or WCD, signed by over 1,100 scientists and professionals. There is no climate emergency, say the authors, who are drawn from across the world and led by the Norwegian Physics Nobel Prize laureate, Professor Ivar Djaver. I'm saying his last name wrong, but climate science is said to have uh, degenerated into a discussion based on beliefs, not sound self-critical science. So the scale of opposition to modern-day settled science, uh, settled climate science, I should say, is remarkable, given how difficult it is in academia to raise grants for any climate research that departs from the political orthodoxy. A full list of the signatories is available there within the article if you want to see who else has uh, attached their name to it. Another lead article of the declaration, Professor Richard Lindzen, has called the current climate narrative absurd, 
but acknowledged that trillions of dollars and the relentless propaganda from grant-dependent academics and agenda-driven journalists currently says it is not absurd. Particular ire in the WCD is reserved for climate models. To believe in the outcome of a climate model is to believe what the model makers have put in. Climate models are now central to today's climate discussion, and the scientists see this as a problem. The WCD says we should free ourselves from the naive belief in immature climate models. In future, climate research must give significantly more emphasis to empirical science. So since emerging from the little ice age in around uh, 1850, the world has warmed significantly less than predicted by the IPCC on the basis of modeled human influences. The WCD notes, the gap between the real world and the modeled world tells us that we are far from understanding climate change. Now, the article here goes on to say the declaration is an event of enormous importance, although it will be ignored by the mainstream media. Well, I can't imagine why. But it's not the first time distinguished scientists have petitioned for more realism in climate science. For instance, in Italy, the discoverer of nuclear antimatter, emeritus professor Antonino Zizcici, recently led 48 local science professors in stating that human responsibility for climate change is unjustifiably exaggerated and catastrophic predictions are not realistic. In their scientific view, natural variation explains a substantial part of global warming observed since 1850. So yeah, Professor Zichichi has signed the WCD. Now the declaration notes that Earth's climate has varied for as long as the planet has existed with natural cold and warm periods. It's no surprise that we're experiencing a period of warming, it continues. Climate models have many shortcomings, it says, and are not remotely plausible as global policy tools. They blow up the effect of greenhouse gases, such as carbon dioxide, but ignore any beneficial effects. CO2 is not a pollutant, it says. It's essential to all life on Earth. Photosynthesis is a blessing. More CO2 is beneficial for nature, greening the Earth. Additional CO2 in the air has promoted growth in global plant biomass. It's also good for agriculture, increasing the yield of crops worldwide. Now, in addition, the scientists declared there's no statistical evidence that global warming is intensifying hurricanes, floods, droughts, and such like natural disasters, or making them more frequent. There is no climate emergency, the declaration goes on. We strongly oppose the harmful, unrealistic net zero CO2 policy proposed for 2050, adding that the aim of global policy should be prosperity for all by providing reliable and affordable energy at all times. And it concludes by saying, in a prosperous society, men and women are well-educated, birth rates are low, and people care about their environment. Now, of course, uh, as you know, the green extremists in academia, politics, and journalism will continue to argue for the command and control that they crave through a net-zero policy. But in the end, their warped view of the scientific process will fade, leaving a trail of ludicrous Armageddon forecasts and yet more failed experiments in hard-left economic and societal control. I'm just glad to see that there's so many scientists that have stood up here. And I get it. Some people are going to say, well, you know, but there really is climate change going on. I believe that there is. What I don't believe 
And what I've been a skeptic about all this time is the idea that if I just give my favorite politician more money and more power, more control over my life, somehow they're going to fix that or they're going to reverse the trend or otherwise save the, the climate. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's hubris. <laughs> that is like a big time hubris that uh, even even God himself would be shaking his head going, wow. At least I don't think I'm a doctor or a climate scientist or whatever the case may be. Anyway, I have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. I'm also going to ask you to check out an article that I'm including in here. This is from uh, QTR's Fringe Finance, Quoth the Raven. And it uh, is kind of a summary of an interview that this uh, person did with uh, their good friend Andy Sheckman, who's the president and owner of Miles Franklin Precious Metals. Now, that's a company that's done more than $5 billion in sales. So this is, you know, not some little startup coin shop. Andy is a world-renowned expert in the field of precious metals and took the time to answer some pressing questions that uh, Quoth the Raven had about the state of energy markets in the U.S., the quickly shifting landscape that the global economy sits on with BRIC nations, you know, that's Brazil, Russia, India, and China, banding together, collectively laughing at the West since the sanctions on Russia went into effect several months ago. Now, he says it was an extremely disturbing interview that left his jaw hanging open by the end. But they talked about the price of oil and the country's response to higher prices, how the Fed is trapped between a rock and a hard place between inflation and recession right now, and the BRIC nations coming together economically, challenging the U.S. dollar as a global reserve currency, as well as Andy's thoughts on how nearly all traditional assets, including stocks, bonds, real estate, and the dollar, may wind up vaporized. Now, I understand that that last sentence is probably causing a few people's hearts to skip a beat. But this is an issue that's worth understanding. I mean, you've got inflation rampant. They've been pointing not just to the prices of certain things, but it's everywhere. Gas is just one of those places. And it's always a monetary phenomenon, says Andy. We don't haven't we haven't seen peak inflation, but bringing the price of gas down 30 or 40 cents. Yeah, that's encouraging, but it doesn't really do anything substantive at all. And then you have the strategic oil reserve, which apparently President Biden has been selling much of it to China and Pakistan. But basically, his conclusion is, hey, we have milked as much from the system as humanly possible. And Andy thinks and he says it right here that global de-dollarization is on the way. He says, I think the whole system could blow up with the loss of the dollar's petrol reserve status. Interestingly enough, do you remember uh, the president traveling to Saudi Arabia? Was he really flying there to ask for more oil? Because Andy says, no, I don't think so. He says, in fact, he probably went there to ask them or to beg the Saudis not to join the other BRIC nations. And Saudi Arabia apparently is looking quite favorably on the idea of signing new protection agreements with Russia. All the Eastern European countries have repatriated their gold. They're all part of the EU, but they trade their own currency. They're getting ready to break away from the Western system. Well, that is an interesting development. And it does raise some interesting possibilities for us. I'm not here to give you financial advice, but... I would encourage, read the article and see if there's anything in there that you think is worth paying attention to. Maybe drawing up some action plans.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Just a quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. I don't know if talk about, you know, the de-dollarization of the world economy makes you nervous, but it definitely gets me thinking, okay, what have I got in terms of being able to take care of me and mine? And yeah, food storage is pretty high up there on that priority list. Click on the link that I provide in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, lifesavingfood.com. Two stories I want to share with you in this segment. Uh, we'll start with the bad news first. Okay, we'll, we'll get this out of the way. Uh, politicians are very famous for promising, well, you know, this tax hike that I'm proposing is only going to affect the very rich. I'm seeing this where I live in Idaho, and there's a, uh, an education initiative that's going to be on the November ballot. And this, the, the language of the initiative has some pretty questionable stuff. This has been brought up, oh, look, we reversed the numerator and the denominator in this particular part of the initiative, and it would actually mean that more and more people would fall into a higher tax bracket, you know, as, as this thing goes along. But, hey, don't worry about that. It'll, it'll get fixed after we pass it into law. Yeesh. Kind of a scary thing. So it's, it's a scary thing to think about, you know, when, when politicians say, oh, it's only going to affect the very rich, they will expand the definition of rich. It's a lie, in other words. You have nothing to fear as the common man, except the fact that the tax brackets will keep, you know, creeping lower and lower and lower. And think back to when the uh, Federal Reserve was established, when the uh, income tax, the 16th Amendment, was allegedly ratified. That is when people were told that this was sold to people. Well, this is only for the fat cats. We're only going to be taxing the the top, I think they may have said maybe 1% or 2% of income earners in the country. Everybody else, you don't have to worry about it. But see, nobody read the fine print. And the sad thing is, you look at today's progressive tax rates, and I mean, who can make sense of it? You, you give your tax returns to 10 different accountants or tax preparers, and you're very likely to get multiple different results because the code is so complicated. So, yeah, it has a habit of growing out or creeping out of its original intent. When politicians tell you, oh, it's not going to affect you, they're not telling you the truth. I've got an article here from Darlene McCormick Sanchez, which says data shows that the number of low-income audits could triple as the IRS grows. You realize, of course, the Inflation Reduction Act one of the most Orwellian-named uh, pieces of policy to be passed within recent memory, actually wants to hire 87,000 new IRS agents, apparently many of whom are going to be armed. Still trying to figure that one out. But let's look at a couple of the numbers here, just briefly. The IRS audited 197 low-income families for every high-wealth family in 2019. That's according to the Government Accountability Office, a number that some experts expected to climb under an IRS turbocharged with more money and manpower. So over the next decade, decade rather, the Democrats' new Inflation Reduction Act will provide the IRS with 87,000 new agents and $80 billion in funding, with nearly $46 billion earmarked for enforcement. 
Now, that's a promise that is going to be uh, that promise of, well, no new taxes or audits on households making less than 400000 a year. That's going to be a tough one to keep. And I'll encourage you, read this article by Darlene McCormick Sanchez. I've got a link to it in my show notes, and it's very detailed. But it really looks like uh, you and I could be facing a whole lot more scrutiny. And does that not fit with the whole, you know, we need greater control, we need greater leverage against people? I mean, come on. Your taxes? Absolutely. How about we have the government crawl up your backside with a microscope and let's just see if they can find any reason to assert more authority over your life. Oh, you made a mistake? That's too bad. Now you're a felon. You can't own guns. You can't vote. Seems like a great way to lock a good portion of the population into a kind of perpetual slavery. Is that too strong or too soon to use that? I don't know. I'm just thinking outside the box here, but not liking the, the expansion of the governor's revenue farming operations, especially with the fact that they're trying to arm them like a small army. Seems to me somebody's getting very serious about trying to bring the American people to heel. All right, let's talk some good news now. If you did any kind of travel this summer, I have no doubt you felt the pain of our high fuel costs. I know this, my, my wife, uh, finally, after, after weekend after weekend of just traveling and going and doing all summer long, finally this month came to me and went, uh, hey, we really got to, we got to watch our budget, you know, because I've been sitting back watching us just hemorrhage money, especially in, in the form of fuel. My gosh, we're filling up every time I turn around. And uh, on the one hand, it was kind of gratifying to see that, okay, I've been careful not to be the wet blanket and try to to dampen anybody's uh, desire to go have fun. But at the same time, I'm starting to recognize we've got to adjust ourselves here a little bit. This is not a sustainable uh, amount of spending, and particularly with, with fuel being a big part of that. So Annie Holmquist, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, actually has some great ideas for bringing the fun home. Five family outings for tight budgets. Thought I'd share some of these with you. She reminds us how back in 1987, a beaming New York Giants quarterback was the first person publicly asked what soon became the well-known question, hey, uh, Phil Sims, you just won the Super Bowl. Where are you going, or what are you going to do next? I'm going to go to Disney World, Sims said. Now, most average Americans couldn't give Sims answer today. And Annie Holmquist says it's... uh, Not because of Disney's woke policies so much as the fact that most families just can't afford the trip to the happiest place on earth. But it's not just Disneyland that's unaffordable. According to a recent article in The Hustle, other classic American outings like baseball games and even movies are beyond the budget of many average families. Now that hasn't always been the case. You know, in 1960, it required 3.8 hours of work to afford a baseball game, 1.4 hours to afford a movie, 13.5 hours to go to Disneyland. Now the cost of those activities has increased by 32%, 22%, and 96% respectively. She says, given that times of togetherness are essential to the well-being of the most basic building block of society, the family, it's a shame that these activities are out of reach to many. So here are a few practical ideas she has for how to have fun with a cheaper price tag. First one is water parks, home style version. She says, on hot summer nights, your family can, family can lounge around inside, or you can drag everyone outside and have a good old-fashioned water fight. 
Throw a few water balloons or squirt guns into the mix or just use the garden hose and buckets of water. Cooling down this way guarantees many hearty laughs, bonding families, and lifting spirits in the process. In fact, she says maybe get a kiddie pool and have everybody pile in. Not a bad idea. Here's another one. Pitching a tent in your own backyard. Compared to Disneyland or other expensive hotels, heading to a state park and setting up a tent is more economical. So she's not literally talking your backyard, but, you know, near where you live, a staycation. An additional perk of tent camping is the kids learn how to rough it by chopping wood, carrying water, and observing real nature rather than a screen of virtual nature. Now, putting the tent in the backyard provides the same cheap thrills, but with modern amenities and fewer wild creatures lurking uh, lurking at your tent flap. By the way, during the month of August, it's also a great way to get the kids outside to watch the Perseid meteor shower. Just something to consider. Or you could do theme parks the historical way. This is another suggestion. She says, okay, maybe I was a strange child, but I always found visits to the old mansions or turn-of-the-century farms in our state to be way more fun than roller coasters. And it's especially fun if you know a fair amount about the history, enabling you to either impress or stump your tour guides with informed questions. She also talks about hitting the movie theater family style. Now, she says, I haven't been to the movie theater in years, but that doesn't mean I don't watch movies. When I hear of one I want to see, I go to my local library's website and put in a request for a DVD version of it. Some libraries even offer streaming now, so getting her name down first on the waiting list, which usually means she has to wait a few months from the time the movie hits the big screen to see it. But she says, hey, the cost is right. The delayed gratification really doesn't hurt anybody, so laugh, if you will, at the slowness of this method, but seriously, it's not a bad idea. And finally, she suggests, take me out to the ball game. Get the kids together. Round up a few other families. Plan a regular baseball night with you and your family as the players. Let's give the kids a chance to interact with adult role models, to learn about teamwork and good sportsmanship. Now, these approaches, she says, are economical, but they also also cultivate something essential to a thriving society, and that is they cultivate your sense and your family's sense of freedom. Have to agree. These are locally driven. They only happen when individuals plan and provide the entertainment, and an event is, a ga- is for gathering. And it doesn't involve spending a bunch of money to make sure you're having a quality experience. Now that's what I call outside-the-box thinking. I've got a link to it in my show notes. Check it out at thebrianheidshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.